I hope you brought a Bible this morning. Um, if you didn't, I hope there's one in the pew so that you can grab it and um, follow along as we read from it in a moment. Um, Nehemiah chapter 8 is the text, and uh, we'll get there in a half a second, but I, I want to keep reminding you of um, this February the 5th, 6th. I know that sounds a long ways off, but you know these days fly by, do they not? These days of around Christmas and Thanksgiving, but Guys, I think all of us have, have got some relationship that has been touched by the issue of same-sex marriage, homosexuality, um, and I've been saying to you that the spokesman in the Christian community uh, about this issue is a woman by the name of Rosario Butterfield, Ros- Ros- Rosaria Butterfield, and uh, she's going to be here in February. You must not miss that. You're going to be faced with it with your children or your grandchildren or your what, whatever, uh, it's the Christian in sexuality. In, um, it's a Friday night and a Saturday morning. Um, we anticipate that we might be picketed. Um, that's okay. Um, but you, you've got to hear what this woman has to say. She's brilliant. She's just brilliant. And um, no, no better spokesman of, about the issues in America today. Hope you'll be, uh, put that down right away. Um. Guys, um, last week we looked at chapter 6. You, you come to chapter 7 in the book of Nehemiah, and there's somewhat of a fork in the road. The, the major evidence of that fork is the fact that uh, Nehemiah um, moves off center stage. He moves out of the spotlight. And Ezra, the priest, moves into the spotlight. He moves on to center stage for chapters 8, 9, and 10. Um, the first three verses of chapter 7 mention a provision that is being made for the security of the city of Jerusalem. Then at verse 4 of chapter 7, uh, we begin to get a list. A list of names. Of, you thought I was going to read that whole list of names? <laughs> Um, <clears throat> a list of names of people who came back from Babylon and the captivity into Jerusalem um, when they were allowed to leave. All of that, which brings us to chapter 8. Um, when I was raised as a child in the Methodist church, um, we were taught a song, a little children's song that I think many of you probably know as well. Um, the, the little song went like this. Oh, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I'll take my stand on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I don't know who wrote that song. But very possibly... He might have written it right after he read Nehemiah chapter 8. Guys, Nehemiah 8 is the record of a people who rediscover the Word of God. So I'm going to read it to you, the whole chapter. I'm sorry to 18 verses is a lot, is a lot, but it's, it's just... It's, 
And by the way, there's lots of names in here that I'll have to pronounce, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce them right. We're just going to read them, I'm going to blurt them out, and we're going to move on. And I'm not claiming to pronounce them correctly, okay? So, um, follow now in your copies of God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 8 at verse 1. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So so Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which had been, which had which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, Messiah. And at his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashun, Hashbadana, uh, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, uh, Hodijah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, uh, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those who, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountains and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyard or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until the day the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly, according to 
to the prescribed manner. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. You know, guys, um, this whole scene that I just read you of Nehemiah 8, it's, it's foreign to us. It's foreign to us because we live in a day of the scandal of biblical illiteracy. What is so sorely needed among us is this. A scene like this. Um, a, A fresh movement of God's spirit. Where, where his word becomes the single source of our ultimate authority. Where, where the scriptures are um, read and, and enjoyed and praised and preached and lived. One of my heroes um, is a guy by the name of J.I. Packer, a, a man that many of you have heard of before. But J.I. Packer wrote uh, uh, several comments about Nehemiah chapter 8. And among them, one of the comments that he made was this. In Nehemiah chapter 8, God shows up and he takes over. (laughs) God shows up and he takes over. And in the center of both of those, that is, his showing up and his taking over, central to both of those, ladies and gentlemen, is the Word of God. Oh God, would you do that again? And ladies and gentlemen, if he chooses to do so, Um, you can bet that at the center of his doing so will be the word of God in the church and in our lives as individuals. Guys, there are are two things that I want you to see this morning. Um, They're both out of verse 1. Actually, both of my points this morning are out of verse 1. I want you to notice in verse 1, the text opens with the mention of the seventh month. You see that? It's mentioned a couple of other times in that whole text that I read you, uh, verse 2, verse uh, 12 or so. (coughs) No, I think it's 14. Um, We're going to come back to that when we close. The seventh month. Do you see that? The other thing that I want you to see in verse 1 is the phrase, all the people. Do you see that? Um, All the people. It's found in verse 1. It's found in verse 3. It's found in verse 5, three times. It's found in verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, and verse 12. Ten times in 12 verses do you find this phrase, um, all the people. Um... Some commentarians suggest or estimated that there were between 30 and 50,000 people in this scene that's being described in Nehemiah chapter 8. 
But guys, the size of the crowd is not my point. I'm not concerned about how big the crowd was. This is my point. They. Who? All the people. All the people, they, those people, say to Ezra the priest, you go get the Bible and meet us at the water gate. They they, they didn't send out 25 GOLs begging people to come over to the church for a Bible study. Or at least the priest didn't do that. The people, all the people, say to the priests, go get the book of the law of Moses. Meet us at the water gate. Because we want to hear what it says. People so eager to learn, to absorb, riveted on what it is that they're hearing. And perhaps more importantly, they they bring with them a predetermined commitment to obey what they hear. They were so eager that they built a platform. Gang, this whole scene in in Nehemiah chapter 8 is a scene of gratitude and reverence. Reverence for, for the word of God and an obvious respect for the truth. They were spellbound. And when the book is opened... They stand up. And they remain standing for between five to seven hours. And they're standing beneath it. The platform. They're standing beneath it. Because they aren't there to stand over it and critique it. They're there to stand beneath it and let it critique them. Tell me. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, why is it that people can listen to hundreds of sermons, including mine, and never hear a thing. Think about that. Over and over and over again, they, uh, they listen to sermons. And they... Um, 
they walk out basically unchanged. Their ears are good. Their, their minds are good. Their bodies are healthy. But they sit under the preaching of this book and they daydream. They write out their grocery list. They balance their checkbooks. They check their Facebook page. They, um, they text their friends. Hey guys, you, you do know, don't you? You realize, I hope, that on the rare occasion that I, that I handled this book aright, on those occasions, you do know, don't you, that you're hearing from God? You know that, don't you? Um, guys, think of the one thing in this life that you and I can touch that has eternity woven into its fabric. This book. Jesus said that. He said, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. But that text that you're sending is more important Explain that to me. How do, how do you justify that? How, how do you rationalize responding to this book like that? Um, these people in Nehemiah 8, they weep when they hear this book. Why? Because they feel the impact of its truth. Guys, um, have you ever had those moments? And, and, and I'm not saying every Sunday. But every, have, have you had those moments when God's word sticks its bony finger into your face and says, you are the man. You are the woman. You're the boy. You're, you're, you're the girl. Have you ever had those moments? Or do you, do you have those moments when you understand that what is being said in this book is meant for you? And you feel the weight of the truth of it. And then, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> if you'll notice in the text, at verse 13, <laughs> we come to day two. Yep, that's right. They want more. <laughs> 
They hang around and want some more. And you'll see the, the repetition of that. All the people, all the people in verse 13, verse 16, and verse 17. And perhaps even more interestingly, at the point at which they realize that they have neglected doing something in obedience to the word, they say, okay, hold on, hold on. We need to fix that. We need to make plans to, we need to make arrangements so that we can conform ourselves to what we just heard you say. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you must not miss this. This is perhaps the most important thing I'll say this morning. (laughs) Did you notice the result? It's in two places. It's in verse 12 and it's in verse 17. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly. Why are they going to rejoice greatly? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. Look at it. It's in verse 17 too. End of 17. And there was very great gladness. Gang, do you, do you see that? That the result of listening and appreciating and enjoying and applying the word of God to their lives which is something that may sound counterintuitive to some of you but the result here is one of great gladness great rejoicing brought on because they understood what God had said to them through the mediation of this book. You know, guys, around here at Grace of Anne, we make a whole lot of this book. Um, we teach it everywhere we can. I mean, we, we, wrote, we wrote a series of songs um, that are nothing but pure Scripture put to music which are designed to try and help you memorize verses of Scripture. We, we teach the Bible in nurseries. Um, I, I, there's a couple in our church that came to us several years ago, and um, they were going to another church, and they had a small child then, and and they went to pick up their child in the, in the children's ministry, and it was around Christmas time, and they were singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And the mother heard that and said, that's it, we're gone. And they left. You would never hear that here. Um, we teach it in the nurseries. We teach it in the children's classes. We, we, um, we try to explain it. We reverence it. We want to help you learn to study it. We, we teach it in all the adult classes. And, and we don't teach it as some kind of book of virtues. We teach it as, as a book that is descriptive of and giving us a description of the very mind of God as black words on a white page. 
Now, why do we do that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, we want to see you happy. We want you to experience joy. Because we know, ladies and gentlemen, that ultimately, if you're ever going to be happy, it is going to come as you absorb the truths and the messages of this book and conform your life to them. Ladies and gentlemen, you may not believe this, but I can never love you more than when I tell you and explain to you what God has said in his word. You remember when Peter had denied Jesus three times and, you know, Jesus resurrects and he, he has a little walk on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with, um, with Peter. <clears throat> and he says, um, Peter, do you love me? Oh, yeah. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And every time Peter replies yes, Jesus says this. Go feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, here's how you can express it. You go feed my people. Because they will never know anything about joy until they absorb the messages of this book and begin to construct their lives thereby. Guys, how do you explain what you see going on here? How do you explain this event in Nehemiah chapter 8? How, how, how do we, who did this? What, what produced that? Well, in the words of J.I. Packer, God showed up and he took over. God the Holy Spirit showed up. And he took over. The best word that we have in our religious lexicons to describe Nehemiah chapter 8 is the word revival. That word has been so abused in the evangelical community. What, what, what is revival? What does that mean? Does it, uh, does it mean um, a week-long meetings and a special speaker and banners and, and maybe a tent um, and, uh, which, uh, in which if, we, um, if certain... Um, requirements are met by us, we can expect blessing. Charles Finney taught that. No, no, that's not what it means, ladies and gentlemen. What it means is something that Jesus taught in John 3 when he said, the Spirit of God moves as he wishes. I can't. I can't do that for you, ladies and gentlemen. 
But I can promise you this. That if the Holy Spirit sees fit to show up. At the center. Of his showing up. Will be the book that he wrote. This book. Do you know ladies and gentlemen that Ezra taught for 14 years before this event in Nehemiah chapter 8. But in Nehemiah 8, God showed up. And he took over. You know, guys, I listen to sermons. I listen to lots of sermons. Um, You know, I feel sorry for my wife. The only pastor she's ever known is me. And... uh, that's why that explains her rebellious nature. Um, but um, I listen to sermons by, by men whose names that you would recognize. They have wonderful stories and witty anecdotes and great illustrations. And then I walk away from those sermons and I want to ask, what did the text say? Because ladies and gentlemen, you will not be changed by my witty anecdotes. We're going to be changed by the Word of God. The Word of God, when it is when it's understood and when it's applied by the Holy Spirit to our lives. Oh, beloved, listen to me. Our lives become durable and endurable in direct proportion to the degree that God's word becomes alive to the base of our souls. So are you missing out on joy? Are you? Well, now you know why. Guys, did you see what my responsibility is? It's mentioned in verse 8. Where they, um, where they take the word of God and, and they, they take what God has said and give what God meant by what God said? That's my job. That's what all those people are doing. But here's your job. You are to bring with you, not a check, you are to bring with you a prior commitment to obey it once you understand it. Once I get it, I am am determined to go obey it. Put down your pens. Stop taking notes. And go obey it. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that the evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving is when people can't take notes anymore. I'm not against taking notes, guys. I'm not saying that. But when the Spirit of God shows up and takes over, all we can feel is the weight of truth pressing down on our lives. Guys, this is the first time that I know of. I mean, I'm not the biblical scholar that some are. But this is the first time that I know in Israel, 
that it's recorded. Where the scriptures are being explained and being used as the basis for faith. And that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to explain this book so that that can be the basis of faith for the people of God. So what are you saying, Jimmy? Are you saying that, um, that Ezra and Nehemiah are our models and uh, we ought to all go out and be like them? That is, you know, the Bible was good enough for Nehemiah and Ezra, so it ought to be good enough for me. No, I'm not saying that. I am saying that Nehemiah and Ezra are only pointing us to the model. The one who had stamped on his life just as it is written. Jesus Christ. Jesus who was the Bible in a body. This thing only points us to him. Now, I gotta go on. I got my, other, my second point and I'll quit. As promised, I told you about the seventh month. Um, this was really fun for me. I saw this seventh month mentioned three times in this, in this chapter. Verse 1, verse 2, and then verse 14 or so. <clears throat> and so, and I knew that, that um, I, I mean, I had a faint recollection that the seventh month was pretty important um, in, um, in Israel. And so I started looking around in my Bible, and, and I found it. On page 182, a chart. A chart that says Israel's annual feasts. And, and, and I bet you've got one in your Bible, too. Uh, probably not on page 182, but I mean, uh, you, you can probably find this chart in your Bible, Israel's annual feast. And I, and I looked at it and I thought, oh, well, look at there. There it is, seventh month. It's called Tishri. And boy, is it, a, is, it a, is it a big month in Israel. My, my, my. They have three, three uh, festivals in the month of Tishri, seventh month. That, you know, it was mentioned in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 14 or whatever. And so I looked at this chart and I thought, hmm, well, uh, Tishri. Day one, first day of Tishri, it's the, it's the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. And that's what's going on in verse 2 of chapter 8. They're celebrating Rosh Hashanah. Just like you see in your Bible right there. And uh, they're blowing trumpets. And you know why they were blowing those trumpets? They were blowing those trumpets as an announcement, as a reminder. That folks, hey, 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 folks, listen up. Nine days from today, we're going to have another festival. What festival is that? Right here in the chart. What festival? Oh, oh, oh. That's the festival called Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. The most important day in all of the calendar of Israel. The day when the high priest took blood and he went back into the holy place. And he offered the blood for the sins of Israel. And so if you look at your text, that's what you see those priests doing in verses 10 through 12. 
They're fanning out into the crowd. And they're saying, folks, don't weep. Don't cry, people. Because nine days from today, nine days from today, there's another festival coming. And it's the one where blood is going to be shed. I know you feel the weight of your sin. Having, having had it explained from God's word. I understand that. But don't weep. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Because there's coming a day. When the high priest is going to go back into the holy place, the holiest of holies, and he's going to offer blood, and there's going to be an atonement made for our sin. And then five days after that, another festival in Tishri. That's what you're reading in verses 13 and following. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was an eight-day temporary living arrangement where they all built these temporary shelters and they went inside and stayed there for a few days while they reflected on what? Oh, they reflected on their days in the wilderness right after God had delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. And while they're in those booths, remembering those days in Egypt and how God had delivered them from that, somebody inside the booth says, and um, what was it that delivered us from that bondage? Oh, I remember. It was shed blood. The blood of of an unblemished lamb was painted over our doorpost. And because we were hiding behind blood, the death angel passed over. Oh, Dr. Young, Where'd you get all that stuff? Oh, I got it from the B-I-B-L-E. My friends, are you feeling the weight of your sin? Don't cry. I am here to tell you not that an atonement is coming. I'm here to tell you that the atonement has come. And there is only one place for you to deal with the weight of your sin.
through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if that is yours, rejoice. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Our Father, I do pray that you will use your word as only you can use it. That you will use it to to convict your people. To cause them to see our neglect of this this book is, is inexcusable. And the reason that we find ourselves in sorrow is because so often because we have neglected and not known your, what you've had to say. Stir us up to new devotions and reverence for this book. And our Father, um, if you've brought people here today who have not yet met our Savior, who still at this point have no sacrifice for their sin, would you cause them to see that the only place of safety is to be found in shed blood, a refuge there and there only. Now, Father, dismiss us with a sense of joy because of Jesus. We pray in his name.